Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, Wall Street. With Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas, it was an 80s staple and a raw look at the new money culture of that time. In this episode, Avram and I are exploring themes around how kids not feeling seen or heard at home will seek out surrogate parents. We're debating whether the character of Gordon Gecko is emotionally mature or not, and discussing when it's a parent's responsibility to launch their kids into the world beyond them. Here we go. Uh, okay, I think we're up. Let's do it. Uh, welcome back, everyone. Wall Street. <laughs> Greed is good. Well, Greed is <laughs> good. <laughs> Ellie, given the fact that our podcast is called Pop Parenting, I, th- I thought I would share something um, a personal story, uh, that you might want to file under too much of a good thing. Um, so this is what I, I woke up to. like that, by the way. <laughs> so this is what I woke up to this morning at an ungodly hour. And by that, I mean anything earlier than seven, I wake up to all of my kids fighting and what are they fighting about? Screaming at each other, Ellie, three boys screaming at each other. Right. Okay? Let mommy and daddy sleep in. You're being too loud. That is what woke me up this morning. At, at a, that is at a very... so considerate of them. That is really nice, Avram. Good job. So I told Elisa, I think that we, um, we're going to teach the kids sign language. And they can scream at each other in sign when they want us to sleep in. <laughs> I'm going to uh... be really honest with you. I have, um, I have a dear friend who um, taught her kids sign language. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons was so they could have conversations and like, you know, if there was like a bunch of people around, like you could actually have conversations. And she said like, so you could talk about things and not embarrass each other. Like she said, it's been unbelievably useful. Her, both of her kids are grown now and they're fully fluent in sign language. I think it's such a cool thing, but I feel like your children are being so <laughs> considerate, Avra. <laughs> I share I share this story. Uh, should any of our uh, listeners feel uh, or think that um, w- you know their humble therapist has it perfect at home, um, I'm I exa- feel like a good I- I'm analogy- exhausted today. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. Okay, got it. I feel like that analogy is a little bit like people who scream at another person that they should be more tolerant and listen more. Right. Okay. <laughs> Wall Street. Wall Street. Let's do this. Okay, let's. There, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot in this film. So why don't uh, why don't you do the one foot, um, okay. and then we'll get into it. Okay. So first of all, I had forgotten that this was an Oliver Stone film. So which you know definitely explains the moodiness of it all. Um, it is. Can you, can you touch on that, Ellie? I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. So like Oliver Stone, especially in the 80s and 90s, was really kind of like. Um, he was seen as sort of like the director who exposes the underbellies of things, you know, and he sort of has a directorial style that's very serious, 
you know, so it, it kind of, you know, it has this sort of dark moody under, you know, kind of raw feel to what's going on. So you can really get a sense of the, um, like he tries to make it look very real. I think, um, I, I think he, he did for wall street, what he did for platoon. Yeah. Of the Vietnam war. He sort of was, he was like the Michael Moore in the eighties, but in fiction. Yeah. So he wasn't, you know, that's yeah, like thing. he was telling the hard hitting stories, right? Yeah. And and so it kind of has that 80s hard hitting stories kind of vibe to it. Um, so it stars Michael Douglas and uh, Charlie Sheen and his father, um, uh, Martin Sheen, which is so interesting. I'd forgotten they were in that together. And really, Charlie Sheen plays a young um, investment uh, broker who works for a very big firm, which you could also call a farm, because like definitely there's a lot of people in there trying to hack their way to the top in the 90s on Wall Street. Um, he has his eye on this big broker named Gordon Gecko, who's played by Michael Douglas, who is the shark. He's one of the big sharks in the, in the pool um, and really wants to work with him or for him calls him 56 days in a row, talks to his secretary, trying to get a meeting with him, eventually shows up on Gecko's birthday and brings him a box of, of his favorite cigars and managed to get a five minute meeting with him. And he manages to get in the door by telling Gordon Gecko some insider information about his father's company, his own father's airline that he works for. Um, Push comes to shove, he gets drawn into this world of like wealth and riches. He starts dating one of Gordon Gecko's, you know, entourage, uh, who's Daryl Hannah, who, by the way, interestingly enough, I saw a little trivia thing that said Michael Douglas won, I think, an Oscar for this performance and a best actor. And she won a Razzie, which was like the award you get for the worst performance. And they said it's the only film in history to have had two actors in the film win these particular two awards, which is really interesting. Um, uh, and so he gets drawn into this whole world and Gordon Gecko really pushes him saying that the way that you get ahead in this particular world is through insider information, even though it's illegal. So Bud Fox finds himself agreeing to, you know, work dirty for him. And so basically ends up, you know, breaking into different offices and finding out all kinds of information and feeding it to Gordon Gecko, and they make a lot, a lot of money. Eventually he has the penthouse in New York City and is living the high life until he realizes that Gordon Gecko is about to um, not buy and rejuvenate his father's airline, but buy it and break it apart and decimate it. And so Bud Fox then takes it upon himself to go after Gordon Gecko, he enlists his uh, Gordon Gecko's greatest rival, who's a British investor, and they basically do their best to crush him in the stock market over the next few days. Bud Fox eventually gets arrested for insider trading. There's a reconciliation. Uh, his father finds out about what's going on at the company that they're going to crush it and has his second heart attack and is sent to the hospital. Bud Fox goes to see his father, who he felt never really approved of him or what he was doing, and you know tells his dad is, that he's sorry and he's going to save the company. Um, he does what he can. He's eventually arrested, and the end of the movie is really seeing him being driven to his court appearance, and he and his father, you know, kind of having this exchange where his dad says, "Look, I'm proud of you," and that's the end of the movie. 
I, I have to say, Ellie, you know, we all have our talents and our skills. I don't know how you do this standing on what there was one podcast. You ha you handed the floor over to me and I was like, damn you, Ellie. <laughs> this is I don't know how to do it. And I don't. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how you do it because you're not reading off. Uh, you don't plan this, right? You're just going no, off the top no. of your head. I, I just try to remember the parts that I remember. I'm sure I'm forgetting all kinds of stuff, and I'm not sure if I'm always coherent, but apparently an, it's coherent an, enough. So that's you good. You do an excellent job, I have Thank to say. Um, I, I enjoy listening to the recaps. Uh, it's probably you know, all those years of reading Cole's notes instead of the actual work in high school. Everybody under the age of 30 has no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> oh, I think they're called Sparks Notes now. I think that's ah. what it is. Okay. Uh, before we, this podcast started recording, we were talking about some of your friends, I think from high school, you said, uh, did yeah. you call them hoodlums? Is I had a crew them? of hoodlums that I hung out with who literally like were parts of gangs in the city and they were obsessed with this movie. They were obsessed. Like they literally could, like they could recite it line by line and they were so taken with the sense of wealth and power that was projected by Gordon Gecko, this idea that you could be <clears throat> the biggest shark in the pond and win at all costs and end up having all the wealth and all the power and all the respect from people that they all desperately wanted because they were growing up in broken homes or in not wealthy homes and um, you know, smart, creative bunch of guys, but really clearly recognized that unless they got some kind of wealth, they would never have power. Right, right. And, you know, when you were saying that to me, um, I was thinking about something I wanted to share uh, today. When I saw the film, the film came out in 1987, I believe that's when Wall Street came out. Yeah. Um, so I would have been 87... I would have been in CGEP in Quebec, which is sort of, our, I guess, in Ontario's grade 13 or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, I was, I mean, I wasn't political at all, but if you had to put me somewhere, I guess, to the left of moderate, maybe progressive, I went into commerce and marketing after CGEP. And I was clearly the lefty artist, musician. Um, my friends would make fun of me in our finance and marketing classes. Um, and then I went on to get my MSW in social work. And I think in social work, I was the, you know, Zionist leaning, Israel supporting right wing nutcase. Um, Are you telling anyway. me you were, you were kind of a fish out of water? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> yeah, it, it, I never really found, um, I never really <laughs> found my bumblebees. Uh, yeah, that's a reference so. to the no rain video in Blind Melon. But anyways, um, watching Wall Street in 2021, uh, it was a very different experience than watching Wall Street in um, uh, the late 80s or early 90s, whenever yeah. I saw it. Yeah. Uh, when I saw it, I much I, I empathized with um, uh, Martin Sheen, uh, blue collar union guy, uh, um, critical of his son's ambition. It's interesting watching the film in 2021 as a business owner. Now mm -hmm. I have three kids um, and I've worked in nonprofit agencies. And my visceral reaction, not to Gecko, mm -hmm. the man, but to the idea of innovation and ambition and and drive. And this this isn't to say that when I watched the film, I thought that um, Martin Sheen's character didn't have that. He did. He was a very hardworking guy. Yeah. No question. But my allegiance to that sort of um, uh, that drive 
uh, I see in my private practice that I did not have working for agencies. You know, when mm -hmm. we would get our funding at agencies, you get your funding in the beginning of the year, your salary is set. There was no impetus to be creative. In fact, in fact, Ellie, it's interesting. I'm not going to name names, but almost any mental health hospital I worked at, there was a way of working with your clients. And if you brought something to your supervisor that you thought clinically would be helpful, if it didn't fall under very specific guidelines, it was always frowned upon. Interesting. Everything was slower. Innovation was squashed and almost right. everything I saw. And there was a lot of pandering to um, whatever minister you were trying to get your funding from. Um, all this to say, it's interesting watching the film this week, uh, and that I clearly have uh, your, your friends, your these these hoodlums that you're referring to. Um, I probably would be uh, not so much the power, but I, I can appreciate yeah. most of Oliver Stone's you know dismay that um, I had more of an emotional uh, affiliation with innovation and drive and dare I say the dirty word capitalism yeah you know yeah. than I did in my in the late uh, late 80s or early 90s it was just an interesting reaction uh, watching the film yeah I think we're in such a different time now I mean we saw the stock market crash of 2008 we saw Wall Street like literally ripped open expo and exposed for the rotten guts that were there um, but again you're not supposed to throw the baby out with the bathwater like you know they're <laughs> There is an aspect that, uh, you know, capitalism brings to the world, which is, you know, good, dare I say, in these times. So, well, we're um, watching it happen right now. I mean, right. um, I, you know, I don't know how pharmaceutical companies work. All I know is growing up, all I heard was the evil pharmaceutical companies, right? That's all I heard. I never heard anybody say anything good ever, by the way, about pharmaceutical right. companies. Actually, until I married uh, my wife, uh, who's a physician, um, who was much more neutral about these things. Like, they're not evil. They're not, they're not, you know, it's not synagogue. It's just, right. they're, they're companies who, business, who have to period. make a profit, you right. know, um, right. and they do some very good work that allow me as a physician to do my job. Well, we're watching right now in 2021, what happens when the best minds come together um, when you combine commerce and science and this to produce a vaccine that I don't understand how it works. But what I'm understanding is it's going to produce many other innovations in, um, in right. the medical community that far exceed COVID. Uh, so like all things in life, there is a middle point yeah. where you can see you can see things that are problematic and you can see things that are beneficial. I think that mature people are able to do that in all aspects, whether we're talking about sex, religion, politics, right. I think it's I think it's people. At, you know, we talk about the scale of maturity. Unfortunately, what I think you see, especially on social media, is a very immature dialogue where there are angels and devils out there in the world. Right. Be sure you align yourself with the angels and move yourself away from the devils. Yeah. Um, I'm not so sure that's what. I see with the families and the couples that I work with. Right. I don't think it's Anyways. reality. I don't think anybody, it's anybody's reality. No one's just one thing for sure. Um, even, you know, I mentioned hoodlums. Like I loved those hoodlums. <laughs> they were my my friends and, and in many ways, my family, uh, you know, for quite a few years, I, you know, I adored them. So, um, so actually I wanted to ask you a question because, you know, you mentioned maturity. And when you look at Gordon Gecko's character, he presents as the BMOC, right? The big man on campus. Mm -hmm. um, he looks mature. 
right? He's handling business. He's making millions. He's paying the bills. He has a family. He has a wife. He has a kid. He, but something smacks to me as not, that is not the, the actual picture. Like when we look at, when you look at Gordon Gecko from your perspective, would you say that he's mature? Well, I mean, first of all, um, I think of maturity quite differently these days. Right. Um, so that's what I want to understand. Yeah. So, I mean, my, uh, just again, Ellie, for the people who've listened to this, I'm going to sound like a parrot here, but I mean, my understanding of maturity comes from the world of family systems theory um, that says that uh, maturity has to do with, I'm going to simplify this definition, something called differentiation of self. And the idea is that it's a continuum. There are people at the far end that are, call it very emotionally immature, and there are people at the other end that are quite um, emotionally mature. There are very few people at the far, far ends of the spectrum. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. And what does maturity mean from this perspective? Standing on one foot, maturity means the ability to know who you are, know what you think, know what your principles are in the company of the people you care about the most and when you're on your own, and that you don't waver and change and become a chameleon, whether you're in the company of your spouse or mother or sibling, or when you're on your own, that there is a consistency and there is a solidity in right. what you believe. Okay. Let me just give you a quick example, Ellie, that, that might hammer this home a bit more. If you go to work and you feel very strongly that your principle is truth-telling is a principle, sort of like the guy who wrote that book. Um, oh, what's that guy? He wrote a book called Principles a couple of years ago or last year. He's a he, he, he's sort of like the Gordon Gecko, but for the good in the finance world. Very wealthy guy. I forget his name. Oh, we will, we will resource remember. it on Facebook. The book sold like crazy. Um, uh, he works in high finance. Anyways, he has a, a policy in his company called Radical Transparency, mm. meaning you will get fired at his company even if you tell a white lie for the good, hmm. you could lose your job. His theory, his principle is that even though radical transparency will sting, it will be for the best in the long term if my staff understand that if they have something to share with me or someone else, even if it stings, it will be the best for the good. Right. Okay. Oh, uh, David Brin. No. No, not David Brin. Oh, that no. was his. No, I have yeah, to, I will, I will find his name I'm and um, uh, it, it, I, I read the book. It's, and it's, by the way, just to let you know, for those who are into book, uh, the aesthetic of book design, yeah. it's a beautiful book, this book called Principles. Yeah. And then he wrote a kid's version, an animated version called Principles, how, ki how kids could develop their own principles. It's, it's wonderful. Anyways, so when I see a guy like Gordon Gecko, I, and, and by, by extension, when I'm working with people in my office, um, I, I, I look past the trappings of degrees and professional success, and I'm looking towards relationship. You're looking towards relationship to see how they're handling themselves with the people that are closest to them. So let's look at Gecko. But what he looks like he's the same across the board. Well, no. So first of all, we know he's having an affair. 
right off the bat, um, right. I believe that multiple him and Daryl Hannah, multiple, but you know right. for sure there's one because I think he's holding Daryl Hannah's hand at one point and he's, there is clearly some sort of a sexual affair that's happening between him and they have a past too. Right. Okay. Right. So one of the things that we know that people who engage in affairs, which are triangles, which by the way, if you subscribe to my newsletter this morning, it went out this morning about Wall Street. I talk a lot about triangles in this wall, in this newsletter. How do um, they, how do people subscribe just so they know? Natigal.com, go to the bottom of the page, put in okay. your email address, and you will get my email. It comes up twice a week. I choose a movie from the 80s and 90s, sometimes something that Ellie and I talked about, sometimes not. Um, and I uh, do a family diagram, and it's it's there. Uh, you uh, If you sign up, you'll, you'll, um, you'll see it. I think they're fun. Okay, so right off the bat, we know that Gecko um, is having an affair in his marriage. So when I think of affairs, I think of an individual that has trouble handing, handling the monogamy commitment dyadic relationship in a marriage. So right away, this is not a guy that I would consider to be emotionally mature. He, I, I'm assuming his wife does not know this. I think that's most people do not come home to their spouse and tell them that they're having an affair. The nature right. of the affair is the secrecy. That's why it works. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, what do affairs do? They stabilize the dyad. So if I'm not happy with my spouse and I can't get something from my spouse, and it's not always sexual. People think it's sexual. It's not always sexual. If I'm not getting something from my spouse and I'm very anxious, I don't know where I stand. I don't know what my world is. I'm very frustrated and I can't deal with my spouse. I will bring in a third to stabilize. This is subconscious. This doesn't happen consciously. Right. To stabilize my relationship. And it works so long as the, the affair remains secret. So I have had clients in my office say to me, my point blank, Ellie. My marriage is doing much better now that I have a lover. Now they know that sounds crazy because they'll say to me, this doesn't make any sense. Right. And, and course, they're in your office telling you that because there's obviously other stuff going on. That's right. So right. They, they are very aware that there is something maladaptive about it, but they don't understand the conundrum, which is that I actually don't mind coming home now. Now, of course, that only works. The joke about it, it only works when the secret is a secret because right. the minute you reveal the secret to your spouse, it's fireworks. And all of a sudden you're sitting there going, this affair doesn't work so well anymore, right? Yeah, that's so, interesting. It makes, it makes me think about what you say about cutoff. Like people cut themselves off because it works. So yeah, people have affairs because it works, but it's not long-term solution. Well, so <laughs> it's old not really a solution. Look, it's what my old addictions teacher in, you know, at McGill University said. Her first line out of her mouth was that, you know, alcohol, you know, the piece, the reason why people drink or snort cocaine is because it works. <laughs> it didn't work. Right. They wouldn't do it. It does help numb emotional pain. Um, anyways, so that's the first sign for me that Gecko is not what he seems to be, at least when he's in his office and he's very powerful. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, telling people what to do and all this. Um, the other thing is emotionally uh, uh, immature or reactive people generally resort to bullying, bossing, telling people what to do. Okay, and the the outcome of that of people doing what you say, okay, usually is driven out of fear. So, you right. know, we, now, now, right. now, now, let me be clear here. There are scenes like Ollie. Remember Ollie, the, the big fat guy? He's big, yeah. he's huge. And he calls him the Terminator. Yeah. Right. Remember, he's the Terminator. Now, they might actually have a much more what we call Ellie in the past on these podcasts, a much more open relationship. So Ollie and Gecko might actually have a good open relationship. It, it doesn't mean that Gecko's relationships are all top heavy, right? Relationships. Mm hmm. 
but it is quite clear how he handles most of his relationships, which is, I'm, I will kill you if you don't do what I say. And not right. physically, but I will destroy you in some way. Right. People who are, call it um, small, emotionally reactive, need people to cower in front of them, are not emotionally mature. These, these are people, I, I, look, we just saw a president in the United States, clearly, who would not be on the scale of emotional maturity. This is a man who, for whatever reason, I don't understand why, had a very popular reality show where he fires people. That was his thing, not hire, fire. That was the right. gag, right? right? I could fire you and I love it. Right. right? Right. Generally, we don't, you know, when I think of someone who's emotionally mature, you're thinking of someone who looks at synergy, that together we can build something together better than I can do on my own, et cetera, et cetera. So right. there's just a couple of uh, clues. The other thing is that, that I, I would see is when he, he's dealing with his son, Rudy, you know, his little kid, he yeah. loves his kid, Rudy. There's no question he loves Rudy, right? right? But Rudy is almost like a thing. To him, if you notice yeah. how he treats him, he buys him a little Sony uh, TV. Which, by the way, isn't that interesting? That that, that was high tech, right? He was Oliver Stone was trying to say, "Look how high tech this is," right? I know. <laughs> um, you know what, what would Rudy have thought? You know, at four, if, you know, if uh, Gecko would have given him an iPhone uh, or something, PS Five. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you know, he he sees his child um, in a way. It, it seems like almost a thing that way he passes the kid off to the nanny and and just right. passes the kid off to the toys and. So you, you don't you don't get a sense that Gecko has deeply satisfying emotional relationships. The, the right. people in his life, they, they seem to him as extensions of his ambition. Okay. Right. And Everything so then you have is to, wealth signals, right? Everything is a signal of his power and his wealth. And so you have to ask yourself, is that principle driven or is that anxiety driven? Now, just to be clear, I am not suggesting that people who are ambitious and who have a, a goal and they, and, they, and they dedicate their lives to accomplishing that goal are acting from an, an emotionally immature place. But I've worked with enough people in my office to know that work and the ambition for work as a way to escape your family is a real thing, right. a very real thing. Yep. So I see Gecko as a, what I would say, a very, um, very, an emotionally immature man who has the power to act in a pseudo self kind of way of maturity. We call it, you know, Dr. Bowen called it a pseudo self. Mm. You can call it a fake self. It's not the greatest term, a pseudo self, where at work, he does look like he is a leader and, and he's mature at work and he is, he is focused and, and goal-driven. Um, I think that there's enough examples in the film to suggest that he's actually quite emotionally immature and he is not, and when someone pushes back on him, he does not know how to handle any type of pushback whatsoever, which of course is going to have problems in the rest of his life with his kids. By the way, anybody, um, someone we know, <clears throat> your mom, um, even who saw the second Wall Street, who mentioned right. to us uh, outside of this podcast, right? She saw the second Wall Street. You see the um, the damage that Gecko has done to his own family when his yeah. daughter has cut him out of her life in the second right, Wall Street. Right. So, anyways. There's lots of examples where I would say Gecko is emotionally um, immature, but not on the far end where Bowen would say that would be someone who is either psychotic, hospitalized, they can't even work. So right. to be clear, Gecko isn't on the far end, but I would say he's on the spectrum. If I had to give him out of 100, we, Bowen used to rank people out of 100 with this whole mm -hmm. long questionnaire. He's probably, I don't know, 48 
Right. You know, out of a hundred, but he does yeah. a very good job of making his anxiety look like a life principle. How so? Like that his, you know, it seems like I would posit part of his, you know, anxiety is related to feeling not enough, feeling insecure, like he's not okay, like he isn't worthwhile. Like, and he said, oh yeah, he says to Bud Fox one day, he says, not bad for the son of a, um, uh, like I think his dad was some kind of factory worker. Or like a schlepper. Like this. Yeah. 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 And so he already has this complex, this idea about himself that he's not enough. And every single thing that he does is to prove to the world that he is powerful, that he is valuable and that he matters. But he sure does a good job of making it look like he's doing that because he believes greed is good and I'm here to save the world. And I think it's so interesting how much he buys his garbage, you know, that he's doing to kind of, like he buys the things he's doing to try to not deal with his own anxiety, um, you know, and it projects in a certain way, like, oh, that guy's so powerful, that guy's so wealthy, that guy's so this, you know, it looks like he has a very, um, he has a clear set of principles. They wouldn't be my principles, but they're his principles and he seems to live by them across the board. <laughs> yeah, and I go, look, Ellie, again, interesting. Th th this, is where, um, this is where nuance is important. Um, when I say that, that, that the, uh, there's evidence to suggest that Gecko uh, is emotionally immature, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that he isn't clear on certain other principles that would be considered a little higher on the scale of emotional maturity. It is not an all or nothing right. game. Right. I work with many people in my office where when they are at work, they do manifest a certain amount of clear leadership, um, clear vision. Mm -hmm. They don't get nearly as reactive as they do at home. But one mm -hmm. of um, something that you know a lot of um, family therapists have observed, and it's very interesting when you see it. Now I, now I see this everywhere is that uh, people are always confused why they function so well at work, but they function so poorly at home. And, uh, and you know, yep. um, Dr. Bowen, Dr. Kerr, all the people who've researched this over the years have said that a, a sign of your true function of maturity, your, sort of your base level character, isn't what you do at work, but it's how you operate at home. Because the crucible of people pulling you away from your center, people who don't care about your power, right. people who aren't scared because they can't get fired by you, i.e. your siblings, your mother, your father, your spouse, your kids, they can't, you can't fire them. Right. They will trigger you in certain ways. And so if you really want to know your character, you don't look at your corner office and your law firm and how you're doing. You see what happens when you come home. Right. That is more a true or in another way of thinking about it. That is what you will pass on to your kids, for example, more than what happens at your office with your secretary or your, you know, the underlings that, uh, that say yes or right. yes, ma'am. Right. Which is what you see. You see people who, you know, run these incredible empires um, and have no relationship with their kids, you know, right. once their kids grow up, I, I, um, you know, what show we should do at some point, if we do like a second season and we do more modern stuff, succession, because there's a show on HBO called succession, which is all this stuff. It's really fascinating. So, you know, it, it would be really interesting to look at that, but yeah, you see that where people are fantastic at work.
And yeah, no, Ellie, I want to, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. I didn't know you were going to bring this up, by the way. Um, one of the points that I wanted to raise here is, is that um, an unintended consequence of guys like Oliver Stone who make films like this mm. is that they try to, you know, Oliver Stone, obviously, he does this in Platoon 2. There's the evil sergeant and there's the good sergeant. William Defoe is the good right. one. I forget who plays uh, the, the, um, the, the bad guy with the big scar on his face. But anyways, um, Clearly in this film, Martin Sheen is the good guy. Yes. The, the union principled guy. Father. Principled guy. Right, right. I don't see Martin Sheen like that at all. That's I'm funny. curious to I hear what either. you... I'm, okay, I want to hear your thoughts first because I think that in the, in the late 80s, right, I saw Martin Sheen as just an all-around loving, good guy. Yeah, common, he was for the, the common Wing. man. He was the president of the United States to all of us who watched the West Wing. <laughs> Right. So I want to hear your amazing. Why don't you share because you're you're um, uh, you're opening up a really interesting conversation here about, um, you know, what exactly is this thing called emotional maturity? Right. um, And how do you know it when you see it? So Martin Sheen, what do do you see in him uh, as a do you see him as an emotionally mature guy? Emotionally mature guy. His character actually made me quite uncomfortable. I think that he was supposed to be this sort of rough around the edges, quote unquote, hardworking blue collar guy. But I didn't find him connective. I didn't find him instructive. I didn't find him supportive. Okay, one sec. I have a question. When you say you didn't find him instructive, that's interesting because I find he's preaching to his son every time there's an encounter with them. He's telling his son what to think and do. So how, how do you not see so that as instructive? I th- found him critical, but I didn't find him pointing his son in a direction with clear um, goals and steps of how to get there. Like I didn't hear him saying, oh, you know what, maybe you should check this out and you could do this. And what is this to you? What is this that you're doing? What could this lead to? Like, it didn't look to me like where he was trying to understand where his son was at but wanted him to be successful, it was like, oh, you idiot, you decided not to be a doctor or a lawyer. So anything else that you're doing is ridiculous. And, you know, so it just seemed like he, you know, he kind of was supposed to be appreciating a hard day's work, but he totally couldn't understand that his son was doing that in his own way. Um, So I think, you know, you could see he, loved his son because he just automatically loved his son as his son but he certainly if you talk about his son feeling seen heard and understood i don't think any of those things were there yeah i'm okay this is this is so important um uh because when we talk about i mean your kids are too young my kids are too young but when we talk about launching you know a lot of people talk about launching what does it mean when it's a parent's responsibility Actually, let me back up here. I'm not sure, sure all parents agree with that. Um, clearly, uh, the helicoptering that is going on with parents, we don't, right. we no longer believe in launching. We we believe in, uh, you know, um, micromanaging our kids right until you know by the time they're 51 that we should still be uh, you know intimately involved in their lives. Um, but I, I I don't think that um, that's working out well for many people. Right. So this idea of launching, uh, I think people like the idea right? That my child is going to leave home. But what people don't understand is that part of the launching process is a twofold um, uh, mission, you can say. The young person 
when they do this well, has to do two things to launch properly. The first thing they have to do is they have to take an inventory of their family and the principles that they've inherited through tradi tradition, through their grandparents, through, you know, and they have to, they have, they have to do two things as they launch. The first thing is to borrow the stuff that works. So that's a 17 or 18 year old that looks over and they say, you know, Friday night dinners were really at my home. It's something I really look forward to. I didn't always want to go, but I can see the value in it. And I really want to continue it. And right. even when I'm on campus, I'm going to have a Friday night dinner. And it reminds me of my, my grandfather or my parents. And they leave. Parents love that part. So that's the part parents love. Right. right. The, the stuff that you're, you're going to do, you know, um, my my mom went to Yale. I'm going to go to Yale. Everything's great. Parents love that. Here's what parents don't like. And this is where ki what kids have a lot of trouble doing. The other part of launching is to create the space for the young person to reevaluate the stuff that didn't work. And this is the stuff that in my office, parents, it's like nails on a chalkboard. This is where I ask a 16 year old in my office to say with their parents in the room, do you want to get married? Yes. Do you want a marriage like your parents? And you can see the parents sit there, their backs get real stiff. Okay. <laughs> and the kids, the kids always look at me. They give me this look like, like don't ask why me would here. you ask me this question? Um, <laughs> and that's the part of launching that parents do not like because mm -hmm. nothing gets is nothing is like a dagger in the heart of a parent to hear your 17 or 18 year old say, I've observed you, mom, dad, over the past years, and I don't want what I saw. Now, some of that could be anxious immaturity, by the way. Let me be clear. Yep. But it is an important process. And what you don't hear in Martin Sheen's character is his son is trying to say something to him. This is in my newsletter. This is the focus of my newsletter. Mm. His son, for years, has been trying to say, Dad, I hear what you did. You wanted stability. You wanted solid job, unions, uh, company man. Good for you, Dad. But you know what I want to be? I want to. I want to break the mold. I want to live in Manhattan. I want it to be exciting. Right. Okay. And all his father heard was, right? You're rejecting my values, right. and you're spitting in my face. Okay. And you can hear it. His father disdains that. You know uh, yeah. what was the line? Um, uh, $50,000 is enough to live in Manhattan. And what's his father's response? His father doesn't hear him. His father says, I make $37,000 and it's right. enough. Right. And so Charlie Sheen comes back and says, dad, but I'm living in Manhattan, blah, blah, blah. And his father comes back with, well, that's just insanity and that's or whatever. That's just crazy. And right. you're crazy by extension. You're crazy. Whenever a parent rejects the ambitions and dreams of their kid, you are setting yourself up for the kid to look for a surrogate parent. I cannot stress this enough. Okay, say it again, loud and proud. <laughs> when you reject your child going through the process of borrowing the traditions that work and working through the stuff that didn't, if you don't give them the space to discuss with you and share your own experience when you left home about right. if you had the opportunity or not, right? Yep. If, you, if you try to squash your child's thinking in this process, and this usually happens, by the way, around 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there, your child will feel, as my late supervisor said, they will not feel seen, heard, and understood by you. They will see you as the enemy to their growth, and they will seek out a surrogate parent in the form of a boss, a therapist, um, a rabbi, a priest, 
and they will reject your wise elder status. And then you'll be sitting there, like a lot of parents in my office, your kids are 33, saying, what happened? We were so close when my kid was 11. How come they never call me? They never visit me? Because when they come home to see you, they have to hide all of that. They have to hide right. what they consider to be the best parts of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a tragedy. Um, and, uh, and I think this film does an excellent job at, at, at describing why Gecko was so powerful to, to, um, Bud Fox. to yeah. Bob, Bud Fox. It wasn't just the money. It was that Gecko saw in Bud Fox an ambition that Gecko had within him. And he, in a way, he, you know, Rudy was too small. Gecko was looking for a son, one could say. Fox was looking for a father, and they found each other. And uh, Bud Fox's father was on the outside position. Oh, my God, I can go on and on. But anyways, I, this is yeah. fascinating. Anyways, yeah, I, and really, Gecko's, Gecko, you know, what was so interesting to me was, you know, the contrast where Bud Fox comes in and says, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, sir, that's illegal. And Gecko really begins his process of remaking Buddy in his own image, which is so interesting because Bud Fox had rejected his own father doing that. But what he doesn't realize is Gecko's doing the same thing. He's basically remaking Buddy into his own image. It just sounds like his image is, is closer to what Bud Fox wants because the bells and the whistles and the apartments and the women and the blah, 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 blah. Um, but he very much, you know, indoctrinates Bud Fox into his way of thinking how the world works and how things should be done. And, you know, that whole kind of, it really is a process of, you know, brainwashing. It's fascinating to watch. Now, look, sometimes when, when young people are searching for a surrogate parent, they get very lucky. You know, you get a therapist who um, uh, doesn't try to uh, fill, you know, understands the boundaries of um, the vulnerability of this young person sitting right. in front of you right. and doesn't, you know, lock you into three times a week for, you know, the next 30 years yep. of your life trying to find yourself. You know, you find a basketball coach that um, provides you with the time to really see, hear, and understand you and really experience that. Ideally, though, whether it's a therapist or a basketball coach, there is someone who guides the young person back to their family. They guide the young person back to their family. So the rabbi does not see their role as being the father figure or the mother figure this person never had. Right. The goal is to orient yourself back to the family of origin to work through the unfinished, unfinished family business. This is why it's important to understand family systems theory, because if they don't, if you don't rework that unfinished business, the theory is that you will you will find yourself in a similar situation of passing down that unfinished business with your kids. So right. a lot of people will say to me, why should I go back to my parents? Because what's the word of the day? They're toxic or whatever the right. case may be. Now, I'm not talking about physical violence. Usually, by the way, when people say that it's they disagreed with me going to get my master's in English or something, it's it's rarely is it some horror story in my office. Anyways. But even when it is like what you're saying is you don't have to go back to the family and necessarily move in with them and get along with them about everything but to somehow finish that unfinished business i think is what you're saying well look ellie you know you know how many young women i have in my office where their fathers abandon the family and so they cut their father out of their lives and they have to build a narrative around why they can never call them again now let's get very clear about something when a father abandons the family and the kids are young the father did something very wrong 
but it usually is a marital thing. It isn't something you did. And so when you build up this whole right. thing that he did it to me and he continues to do it to me. And what's interesting, by the way, right. the yeah, there's very few parents who would say I left because my kids were horrible. No, well, no, well, no, what they will, they might say is that, you know, um, we got pregnant by accident. I wasn't ready to become a father. Mothers, by the way, have this experience too. It's not right. all just fathers. And I was overwhelmed and an immature huff and a puff. I just got out of there because I couldn't handle it. It was some version of I had to escape. I had to get out of there. Again, bad, bad, bad. But when you're 22 and you have a string of relationships that aren't working, right? you have to think that maybe there's some unfinished business I have to deal with. And, and I have to tell you, Ellie, my, you know, my anecdotal um, or my clinical observation is that the young people who are able to go back to their families and work through some of the unfinished business with the parent that they have the most, um, as we say in Yiddish or Hebrew, the most um, issues with, we bring that learning into all of our future relationships. That's a money back guarantee, by the way. People who think that you can only do this with a therapist in a therapist's office are mistaken. I'm sorry, my, my colleagues are mistaken as well. It has to go from the therapist's office back home in some capacity to work through the knot it doesn't happen by going, I'm just going to double down on my marriage. I'm just going to do it so much better than my mother or father did. It's not about the intensity. In fact, the intensity often produces the same um, result. Uh, this could be a, look, this could be like a three-part series on leaving home, but I just wanted to, right. you know, uh, throw that out there that Gecko would never become the father figure for um, Bud Fox. The disappointment was built into the, in, into the triangle between those three. Yeah. Um, and of course, the tragedy. Can we just spend a tiny bit of time with the, the end of the yeah. movie? Is yeah, that okay yeah. with you? As yeah, we, absolutely. With the last few minutes we have here? Let's do it. I, I'm going to read something here. It is, what, it is by far my favorite line from the film, and I think it is very true, at least uh, when clients ask me, how does change happen? So I'm going to mm -hmm. read this to you here. Okay. So the guy's name is, is it Mannheim? It's the older, one of the older supervisors, the nicer one. Yes. Yeah, Mannheim? Yeah, yeah. Mannheim? So. Yeah. So this is the scene where uh, Bud Fox walks in and everyone's looking at him uh, with suspicion and mm. something is up. And Bud Fox right. doesn't know the police are in his office. He's about to get arrested. And this Mannheim, who's probably in his early 70s, late 60s, he, you know, he's wise. He pulls Bud Fox aside. And this is what he says to him. <laughs> Bud, I like you. Just remember something. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that time, a man finds his character, and that is what keeps him out of the abyss. It's such a great line. <laughs> it's such a great line, and my understanding is Oliver Stone borrowed that from a line from Nietzsche um, that's yeah. a, a little bit different, but this, for English readers, this works better. Right. Um, any thoughts, by the way, about that line? Like, anything come up for you? Look, I mean, I often, you know me, I'm, I like... Um, I like Carl Jung and his approach also, you know, um, I think that they speak interestingly to each other, family systems and Carl Jung. So I would say, you know, the, that Jung used to say, you know, the shadow is the royal road to the self. So, you know, what is he saying? He's saying, look into the darkest places, but recognize that you're looking into the darkest places. So you don't just like fall in. Um, you know, so I, I think to me, that was that, you know, that sort of spoke about if you can see the darkest parts of yourself, you'll come out a better man, you'll come out a better person. 
um, and survive it. Um, I think, I mean, that, that was what I thought was interesting. And I did think it was very interesting that he was giving him that advice in that moment, knowing that Bud Fox was about to hit the wall and face the consequences of his actions. So I don't know. What did you see? What, what was interesting for you about him? So, um, uh, the good news and the bad news. Let's start with the bad news. Most people severely underestimate how difficult change is, severely. Meaning most people um, understand cosmetic change. Um, that's you read a self-help book, uh, you institute a habit and you pat yourself on the back and think, wow, I, I'm making some real good progress here in whatever, um, you know, whatever dilemma I, I'm in. Oh yeah, well, that's why those home reno shows are so popular, I think. It's like, ooh, change, look at that. Everything's right. different, right. I didn't even have to do it. <laughs> and look, Ellie, you know, we see this, we see this, of course, in our community. Uh, the ball chuva at the beginning, right, generally is cutting off something to get something. The, the person who leaves religion is doing the, it's the exact same psychological phenomenon. They're rejecting something to embrace something. And the pendulum has to settle at some point. Mature right. people embrace the new thing with maturity. Immature people continue to swing back and forth, right? They run from the ashram to this, to that. They're always like searching for something. Yep. Here is the observations that family therapists have been researching for decades now. And uh, I have to say, I haven't seen a contrary example to this. Change generally happens, not by willpower, but for most people, not all, I wanna be clear, people higher on the end of emotional maturity can, can enact some of this change themselves. But for most people, and I would put myself in this category, by the way, even with you know all my training and all, this is me. <laughs> most of the time, my most profound changes happen when a nodal event has happened in my family outside of my um, uh, um, proactivity. Right. So for example, a death in the family, right. um, a job loss, um, uh, a forced move, um, COVID, right. something happens well, from the outside. Upon you. Exactly. Right. And the abyss, the abyss in this case, to, you know, the abyss is that Bud Fox was doing things and there was no way that train was going to stop. He was going to keep doubling down because yeah. there was something in his past that was driving him and it would take some sort of fundamental paradigm shift for him to reconsider his position. I think what Oliver Stone is trying to say with this quote is that if you handle jail properly, you will stare into the abyss and find your character. Right which is such a beautiful idea. It's a scary one because we underestimate how challenging change is. Now, if you speak to anyone who goes through, um, sometimes, you know, take a divorce, cancer treatment, um, uh, the loss of a job without any, and you go through what, you know, Young called the dark night of the soul, right? The forest, you know, you're in the forest, there is no right. path. It's a dark forest, there is no clear path. Anybody that has gone through profound change will say it took eight months, two years, whatever, but they've come out of the forest and they thank the experience. But when they're in the forest, yeah. right, and they might even be in a psychiatric hospital, it does not feel like fun. Right. But the idea is that when you come out of jail, whatever, if you handle it properly, you understand your character. And I, th and I think what's so beautiful about this is, but it's also so sobering, 
Okay. You know, why does it have to be that hard? Why does it have to be that hard? So I'm not here to answer why. I don't know right. why. But my observation with most of the families I've worked with is, unfortunately, for most people, it takes a sledgehammer across the head to wake someone up to their sleepwalking and realize what exactly do I stand for? Who am I? So anyways, I just, I love this quote. I think it's true. Elia, why don't you come in with some final thoughts and we'll, we'll close up. So I think that's interesting. I think the abyss wasn't the going to jail. I think staring into the abyss was his recognition of what he'd done and the choices he'd made and why he'd made those choices that would end him up in jail. So then, you know, mm. using the jail example, he would be in jail, hopefully understanding, wow, like, I really don't like myself so much. I don't see myself as good or valuable or whatever his stuff is. The abyss is looking into all those places in yourself and realizing why you make the choices that you make and that you've been making choices, that this isn't just your life happening to you. And, and I think that that's kind of a a push comes to shove moment. Are you going to be grow or be crushed, you know, by your circumstances? And, you know, we were, I was talking about this yesterday with somebody, I can't remember what we were talking about, but this idea that if you recognize that you have, you know, if you're part of the problem, you're part of the solution. If you don't have any part in what's happening to you. And I think, you know, the sledgehammer generally comes and this isn't in any way saying, you know, why bad things happen to good people. That's not the, in, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about this in terms of a self-growth paradigm, which is what is the responsibility of each person to be proactive in their own growth? And more often than not, if you're not proactive in your own growth, then you'll get the push from the outside, right? Because growth has to happen sometimes, like in certain places and, and with certain people. So you know, you're either going to be proactive about it. You know, it's either you learn it at home or you get schoolyard justice, right? With your kids. I'm going to teach you that it's not okay to hit because if you learn that on the schoolyard, it'll be, you'll hit some kid and they'll clobber you across the face, right? So better you learn it here at home with me than you learn it in the schoolyard. And I, and I think that that's the abyss, which is how much responsibility is each person taking for their own, um, growth and emotional maturity or are they just always waiting for life to hit them in the face and make them change yeah yeah I, I, yeah i'm not so sure i see it in the same way at least in this film i think uh, the, the, this is uh, my thoughts um uh, you know bud bud speaks to the cops or whatever the da or whomever right and and implicates uh gecko right because he he was going to get a shorter um a jail time or he'd get some sort of dis uh, dispensation or something, you know. In yeah, court. not only that, uh, and it's revenge. It, it was totally and revenge, revenge, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what I think, when I think this guy, when he says that, you know, man looks in the abyss and there's nothing staring back at him, how I perceive that to be, at least when I'm thinking about my life and and uh, some of the work that I do, is that when everything is stripped away from you, at the point when he says this to Bud, he, Bud Fox is walking to the. Remember, he's striding in. Things are good. I mean, they think, he thinks actually things are going to be just just going to go. He'll just be a bit more of an ethical uh, stock trader. Um, but what this what this guy is saying to him is, I know the cops are in your office, so I want to tell you something right now. Right. You're going to be sitting in a jail cell in about an hour. Right. And you're going to be staring at a white wall. No fancy cappuccinos. No promotions. Mm -hmm. Your life is over now. And you're right. going to think perhaps even of 
killing yourself. Right. Know this, you are staring at the abyss, manage it well, and you will discover truly who Bud Fox is. Yeah. Um, I think there is something uh, very true about that. Why I think it's important for people to understand that is because when you're in the abyss, it's very hard to believe that absolutely possible. Yeah. When you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to to think that's possible. So we should all have yeah. uh, uh, Mannheim uh, reminding us um, of this. Yeah, I think interestingly enough, you know, this guy was able to do something that most people generally aren't able to do because the truth is he was able to get it, that message to him before he got into the abyss. Because the truth is, we're not allowed to say that to people once they're in the abyss. Hmm. You can't turn to somebody and say, oh, it's a test. You know, when they're in the middle. No, of that's cruel. It's you cruel can't. and it's unsensitive. It, and they won't hear it and it doesn't yeah. help. You know, you can only say that before or after. And, and, you know, Jewishly, we would say you should actually only be saying that to yourself. Hmm. Everyone else, you just help them and support them and you do the best you can. Right. You know, but he, this guy in the film managed to get that message to him before he entered the abyss where he could, you know, he could crack that nut open and, and realize why this guy was saying what he was saying so that he could manage it better. But yeah, we're not supposed to say to somebody while they're in the abyss, by the way. <laughs> That's right. It's a but, good which is, thing you're here. But Ellie, and that's why we have the Pop Parenting Podcast so that we can do this, you know, with a light touch and, um, you know, Amazing. whatever people walk away with, they walk away with. This okay. A, it was a fun movie to watch again. I enjoyed yeah, it. Loved it. It was a lot of fun. Um, okay. okay. Uh, we'll talk about it, what we're going to do next week. Um, for those of you, if you haven't subscribed to Avram's podcast uh, newsletter, please do go to his website, natagill.com. And um, I will send it out also a link to that on the next JFI newsletter. Please look for the podcast episodes and we will see everyone next week. Thanks, Avram. Take care.